Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Mark 9, verses 2 through to 13. If After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked them, they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God who does speak to us, a God who, uh, by your spirit, moves our hearts towards knowing you deeper and to live for you, de- live for you as well. And so we pray for that now, Lord, as we hear from Mark, as we hear from this gospel, hearing about Jesus, what he did, his life, his teachings, uh, and the sacrifice he made for us. Help us to consider, as uh, your people, as the church, what it looks like to follow him. So I pray for that now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a few years ago, I was going through, uh, I want to say quarter-life crisis, but it's probably more like a mid-life crisis, probably an early mid-life crisis. And so I called up a childhood friend of mine and I said, hey, let's do something crazy. Let's go jump out of a plane. Now, not jump out of a plane, literally skydive. We, went to go, we wanted to go skydiving, right? So I said to him, we're young. We're young. And, uh, you know, we're young once. Let's go do it. And I say that every time I need to justify myself. We're young. Uh, So this is what we did. We drove 90 minutes up the coast, arrived at this place, went through these safety instructions, got paired up with an instructor. And then within 10 minutes, I was getting onto this rickety, noisy plane, right? There was about 20 of us packed in like sightings. Who's gone skydiving before? Can I just ask the room? So a few people in the room, right? Now, you guys might not think this is exciting because you guys were like, yeah, I was going skydiving and jumping out of a plane. Now, I was nervous. I went to this place, and as soon as I got there to sign up, put my name down and everything, I had to empty my bowels. I just had to go to the toilet. Like, I was just nervous. So I went to empty my, and I came out, and everyone was gone already. So everyone had got onto the plane already, and I was running late. So I was quickly, you know, putting on this uh, safety stuff, got onto the plane. I was the last one on the plane. So there was about 20 people packed in like sightings on this little plane, and I was the last one, which meant I was the closest to the door. (laughs) Which meant as we flew up, I could see everything through the door, through the window in the door, and the higher I got, the more nervous I got, because if I'm the last one on, that means I'm the first one off. 
Uh, we got up to about 14,000 feet and the higher we got, the more nervous I got. And I was like, there is literally no turning back, right? The, the only way I could turn back is to jump off this plane uh, to land back on the ground. I was the closest to the door and there was no way, nowhere to move. And so we were getting higher and higher and I had no, literally no time to panic because as soon as the door opened, the instructor just said, let's go. And he just, I literally just pulled me off and that was it. Blink of an eye and that's, we were just, we were free falling. And uh, it, was, it was crazy and I was, I was screaming, like I was trying to scream, like, but the force of the wind kept beating against my chest at the same time. So I was like, I was like, ah, ah. Ah, and, and I realized there's no point in screaming. So I'm going to stop screaming and I'm just going to try and enjoy this. But it was really hard to enjoy, right? The, the, the wind is like beating against you. Uh, you know, my, my, my body was filled with adrenaline, but the, the wind was slapping against my face. It was really uncomfortable. And, and, but it was also like this, it was also beautiful. I looked down and like everything in front of me looked like this, this like, like a 2D, like distant uh, painting. It was just like trees and buildings and the beach. It was really beautiful, but at the same time, it was really painful. And so I was coming down free-falling, and as we got lower and lower, the parachute deploys, and you start, you know, you start, you start floating, and you start getting to breathe again and relax, a moment to enjoy the beauty of the scenery of the mountains of the oceans. And then, next thing you know, you're on the ground. You know, you're, you're, your shoes are ankle-deep in the sand. And it was over before it began. Like a really intense roller coaster, you know, it just happens so quickly. Your adrenaline's, you know, going like crazy, but then, oh, it's over. Really short-lived. Now, if I lost you at any point, the TLDR version, right, was we went to this crazy experience, 90 minutes up into the air, 90 minutes to get to the coast, five minutes in the air, 90 minutes to go home. That was it. We drove all the way there just for a five-minute experience. And that, all that effort and money for a short-lived adrenaline-fueled experience, it might sound crazy to you. You might, never experience, you might never imagine that you'd go skydiving either, but don't we all live for experiences like that? Like these, these little experiences that give us a sense of awe and wonder. Perhaps for you experiencing the adventure of going for a hike, you know, through, through the, the forest, the jungle, climbing mountains... The experience and wonder of, of a live concert, the theater, the ballet. And the, for some of us, the excitement of a 12-course degustation, you know, the fine dining experience, savoring tastes and textures of good food. A beautiful sunset that you can't not take a photo of. Or winning, winning in a game of chess against Ross. Wow, that would feel good, <laughs> wouldn't it? A night of quiet with a glass of wine, perhaps, your favorite episodes of The Office. Experiences that leave us with no other words, but simply, wow, that was, that was pretty awesome. Awesome, but over too quickly. Truth is, no experience is ever enough, right? And some experiences change our lives, sure, but do they ever truly satisfy our insatiable souls? The experiences are short-lived. The adrenaline dies down. The excitement blows over. The feelings of awe and peace and love and joy and happiness last but for a moment. But what if these experiences really are to point us to something greater? A glimpse of something far more glorious and far more lasting. Something so awesome that it will shape our very lives. See, that's what happened to a few people in our narrative today. 
in this part of Mark's Gospel in chapter 9. Peter, James, and John, they were disciples of Jesus who had a divine experience in this extraordinary moment in history that shaped how they lived that's been recorded for us in the Bible. So last year we did look at Mark chapter 1 to 8. And just to give a bit of context, much of it was uh, hearing about Jesus, his actions, his teachings, the miracles he performed. And the question on everyone's lip, the crowds, is who is this man? He's performing miracles and teaching like uh, with, with wisdom. In chapter 8, just before chapter 9, before the part we read, we discover his close disciple Peter acknowledges Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Right? A term used for the one, who, uh, the one who's the, the king, the savior king, who's going to come and rescue God's people, Israel. The people were looking forward to the Messiah coming, the Christ. And so that happened in chapter 8. Peter says, you're the Christ. Right? And that's where we ended last year. So it's not soon after this, after this that Jesus leads Peter, James, and John to have a mountaintop experience. He leads them literally up a mountain to have a mountaintop experience where his glory is unveiled. So let's read it again, chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now we've heard the term mountaintop experience, right? Hopefully you've heard it at some point, a phrase used to describe that deep spiritual experience that we have. I want to have that mountaintop experience. It's like... Perhaps, yeah, it's when you're, you felt in touch with nature or you were given some sort of clarity and perspective on life. Oh, I had a mountaintop experience. And it's not a coincidence, too, that if you look around the world, you look at where the temples are and the monasteries are, they're all up on mountaintops, aren't they? Uh, places that are remote, hard to get to, where there are uh, less people around. A place where people believe they can deeply connect with the divine. But it was a, a thing, even in ancient times, even in ancient Israel. The mountaintop is where you're going to encounter God's presence. And this is precisely what happens with the three disciples. Jesus takes them up a high mountain and these disciples have an encounter with the glory of God. Jesus, we're told, he transfigures. Right? The word here is is like, it it is metamorphosis. A transformation occurs. He he begins to radiate into this shining bright light, this white being. Now I've heard this phrase used before, um, usually with women and between women but they always say to one another often wow wow you're glowing and i'm trying to understand what that means it's a positive thing like right it's a positive vibes like an aura coming out of you you're you're glowing now i've never had someone say that to me but i imagine right when i think of people glowing I think of something like radioactivity you know like when people turn green like in the cartoons i think of an alien perhaps they're glowing but here, Jesus is literally glowing. And I love this description, right? Whiter than anyone in the world could bleach. I mean, that, that, that white from whiter than bleach. I don't know if you can even, I can't. I mean, no matter how great your laundry powder is, right? Nappy sand, whatever bleach product, this is whiter. But what, more than anything, isn't this just a description of his pure, purity, like his pure holiness, an experience of his glory? Now, if we stopped here, it just sounds like Jesus is like a conjurer of cheap tricks, right? He can make himself glow. But to truly appreciate the depth of this passage, we have to read the words, read the story in, with, with the mind of a first century Jewish person. 
right? Because if you know the Hebrew scriptures, you'll hear echoes of ancient stories that have been passed down from generation to generation, and your mind will be transported back to Exodus in the, in the Old Testament where we're told about Moses, where he had an encounter with God when he went up a high mountain as well, Mount Sinai. So I've got to go to the Old Testament. I've got these passages on screen for us to follow. Exodus 24, it says, When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days. The cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. What, what Mark tells us is that Jesus traveled six days up a mountain and there was this bright, bright shining light transformation. Elijah, Moses shows up as well. And 9 verse 7 tells us a cloud covered the mountain. Right? So we're seeing these parallels already. As in the story of, the story of Exodus, it goes on. It talks in chapter 33 about Moses again on the mountaintop asking to see God's glory. But God says, you can't. If you see my glory in my face, you'll die. The holy radiance of God is so great, so awesome that no human being can gaze upon God and live. So God passes by Moses. Exodus 33, Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, where my glory passes by. I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you'll see my back, but my face must not be seen because you'll die. So that's what he tells Moses. In chapter 34, I'm going to go to another verse for you guys of Exodus. Moses comes down from the mountain. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, right? This is like the Ten Commandments of the covenant laws in his hands. He was not aware that his face was radiating, radiant, right? Because he had that radiant, because he had spoken with the Lord. Isn't that amazing, right? He's he's glowing. He's come down. He's talked to God on the mountain in this cloud on Mount Sinai, and he's glowing. Now, we're reading Mark chapter 9, and what's happening? Is this Mount Sinai all over again? There's so many allusions to this Old Testament story, but it's not quite the same, is it? See, Moses came down and he reflected the glory of God, like the, like the moon reflects the sun, right? The moon itself isn't the source of light. You guys know that, right? Hopefully. And the, sun is reflecting its li- uh, the moon is reflecting the light of the sun. That's what Moses is doing. He's reflecting the glory of God, but Jesus' very being is emanating the glory of God. He is the Son. Jesus is not pointing the people to the glory of God. He is the glory of God, personified. And so John, one of the disciples there, in his gospel later on, chapter 1, verse 14, he writes this. He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the writer in Hebrews as well, I've got a lot of verses today, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That should make us stand in utter awe and wonder that these disciples, they saw this. And what should really blow our minds is Peter, James, and John, they got to gaze upon the glory of God. And guess what? They didn't die. You see, the times we see God in the Old Testament show up, it's usually like a cloud, a a pillar of fire, a burning bush. And the Hebrew word that that scholars use to describe these manifestations of God is called the Shekinah glory. It sounds really cool, huh? Shekinah glory. God's holiness on display, so powerful that he must come in the form of a cloud or a fire. Because if you gaze upon his face, you'll certainly die. And you might hear, if you go to other churches, maybe some... Uh, Pentecostal churches perhaps you might hear preachers say this the the Shekinah glory is here in this room 
but I'm not too sure about that use. I mean, I don't know if it's quite accurate, because when we hear about the Shekinah glory in the Bible, it's usually God shows up in really spectacular ways, like a cloud on a mountain, a burning bush, pillow of fire. What the Shekinah glory tells us is that God is so great, so pure, so holy, that he has to veil his face from us. The gap between humanity and God is so big. If he's dazzling, radiant, like he's dazzling, radiant, white, right, right? If he's this, this white, pure being, we're distant from him. We're the, we're the people that are wearing the filthy, dirty, stained clothes that can't come into his presence, otherwise we'll stain him as well. Our sin, our rejection of God, our disrespect, our dismissal of God means we can't enter into his holy presence. His glory will destroy us. But here we have Jesus unveiled, God's glory on display. They gaze on the glory of God and they remain standing in awe. They're having this mountaintop experience. Now, if, this, if, if the transfiguration alone wouldn't have, been enough, wouldn't have been enough to blow your minds, we see two dead people appear as well, right? Moses and Elijah. They're, they're long dead. While Moses is remembered as the one who brought the law of God to the people, Elijah is often referenced to describe the, the prophets of God. Right? So you've got the law and the prophets. What are their purpose? To point people to the glory of God. And they're there with Jesus. Peter, the disciple, we often read about him in the, in the Gospels. He doesn't know how to respond. And I, I totally relate to this guy. If there's an awkward silence, this is happening in front of me. You just want to say something to try and sound smart, right? So he utters something out. Hopefully something good will come out of his mouth. But he's frightened, so he breaks the ice. He says, let's build three tents. That's a good idea. Let's build three tents. For, and let's, this is a good thing. Let's stay here. Let's build three tents. Now, these tents is, is tabernacles. In the Old Testament, that's what the word would be, tabernacles. It's this common practice in ancient religions uh, where tents were built to create a space where people could worship God and be protected from their glory, the Shekinah glory. Right? So that's why tents were built. Peter, it's not a bad suggestion. You know, Peter thinks, okay, let's build a tent. But he doesn't quite know what's going on, does he? There is no need for it. Because Jesus himself is that tent. He is the tabernacle. Within, within him is the Shekinah glory. That means he bridges the gap between God and humanity. What happens immediately after he utters these words is a cloud does envelop the mountain, doesn't it? And God's voice booms. It says, this is my son, right? Listen to him, whom I love, listen to him. At the start of Mark's gospel in chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus is baptized and a voice from the heavens comes down. This, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Here in chapter 9, the same voice comes from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. You see, the disciples witness the glory of God in Jesus, where God acknowledges again his son, but this time the disciples are called He's talking to the disciples. Follow him. Listen to him. The cloud vanishes. Moses and Elijah vanish as well, leaving only Jesus in their presence. And this is what God wants the disciples to know through this mountaintop experience. The veil has been pulled back. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He will save his people through himself, bridging the gap between God and humanity so that sin no longer separates us. He becomes the final prophecy, right? No need for Moses Elijah. He is the final word of God. The fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Jesus accomplishes that as one, as, as the one who himself will sacrifice his very life. Himself pure and holy for people like you and I, that our sin can be dealt with, that we can be made clean, we can enter into God's presence. How good is that? 
Have you ever wondered that? Meeting God begins with knowing Jesus. When I share about being a Christian with um, people I meet, my friends, uh, I often get the response, thanks, but mm, I'm not really the religious type. And in my head, I'm really blunt, right? So I say, oh, rubbish, of course you are, right? We all want to meet God. We all want to have a divine experience. And while we look at the stats and there's a decline in Australia for religion, the truth is we're all looking for a mountaintop experience. We all want to have that religious, I mean, a taste of the divine. Sit down and, and take a bite out of that juicy aged Wagyu steak or whatever, a, a fluffy souffle matcha pancake melts in your mouth. And tell me that's not a religious experience. Come on. That yoga session where you felt totally in Zen mode, a, a sense of peace in the stillness. Tell me that's not a religious experience. Or even that experience, even just unwrapping, right? Unwrapping that new iPhone, sitting behind the wheel of a new Tesla, whatever it might feel for you, you know. To be human is to worship these experiences. But as much as our friends don't want to admit it, those experiences are always going to be temporary, fading, until we meet the true God. Until we come face to face with the divine. Who is that? That's Jesus. Jesus allows us to experience glory and a permanence of it that can only come from the one who is pure, holy, and eternal. While many say they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, it's only in him that they'll truly have the divine experience that we're all looking for. Now in Mark chapter 9, the scene ends with a conversation they have walking down from the mountain. Jesus tells them not to speak about this experience until his resurrection. The disciples are obviously confused. What does it mean to rise from the dead? And then we've got to go back to chapter 8 a bit here. Jesus already predicted that he'll die, so they're still working out why the king, the Messiah, the Christ, is going to die. You can't blame them. They just had this extraordinary divine experience where God's glory emanated out of Jesus. He was glowing and he was transformed before their very eyes. The Son of Man, the one who is the Christ, the Savior King, who is here to rule and reign. Why are they told not to tell anyone? And why in the world is Jesus predicting again that he's going to die? The Son of Man doesn't die. He's a conquering king. And so they're thinking, how does that work? So they instead bring up something from the scriptures again. In verse 11, they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? It might sound totally unrelated to his resurrection, but there's something again that we need to go back to to understand this reference. In the prophecy of Malachi, Malachi, the book of Malachi in our Old Testament, in chapter 4, it speaks about a day of the Lord that will come. Judgment on the wicked, restoration and victory for God's people. In Malachi 4, 4 to 5, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah, both Moses and Elijah, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, of the Lord comes. Right? These disciples are switched on here. They know their scriptures. They just saw Moses. They just saw Elijah during this mountaintop experience. The day of the Lord must, Lord must be near them. Everything is going to be restored because Elijah has appeared. So, Jesus, why are you talking about the Son of Man dying? If the day of the Lord is here, there's, there's going to be victory. Victory for God's people. Judgment on the wicked. But Jesus replies. He says, Elijah has already come. You see, that Elijah that Malachi was talking about had come in John the Baptist. Go back to chapter 1 of, of Mark, uh, and we hear all about him. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He announced the coming day of Jesus the Christ. And this John the Baptist was killed by King Herod. He had already been executed. 
Just as this Elijah was killed, so too will the Son of Man, Jesus, will be killed too. The Messiah, Savior King, will save his people through suffering and dying on a Roman cross. It will be through weakness and humiliation that he will be victorious. It's only through death that he'll conquer. And when he dies, his glory will be on full display. When he rises from the dead, when sin and death, then sin and death are dealt with once and for all. Jesus says, wait till the resurrection before you speak about this. Because the transfiguration is really only a preview. A glimpse of the greater glory to come. The God-man Jesus will die. And he'll be raised from the dead. And only then will we see the complete, eternal, lasting picture of who this Jesus is. This transfiguration, it means the disciples get a glimpse of that here in chapter 9. A preview of what the resurrection brings to life. Now we read this and we have to really put ourselves in the disciples' shoes, don't we? This is one of those life-changing experiences. You just met God in a cloud. The Shekinah glory. And he says, listen to my son. Listen to Jesus. And while we might not have that sort of transfiguration experience right before our eyes, the disciple, like the disciples, we've met Jesus, haven't we? You and I, through our experiences, haven't we witnessed and experienced his goodness, grace, and love? We've, we, we, we've, we've had, uh, we have the Bible in front of us. We can uh, know that the, the reality of the cross in history, that it actually happened. But I've also experienced Jesus through the people in my life and the mountains and valleys I've gone through. I've witnessed miracles and people who change from anger to patience, greed to generosity, hatred to love. I've had my mountaintop experiences where I felt the peace of God in my heart. Sometimes they're yeah, out in nature on a literal mountaintop, but sometimes here with my church as we read and hear from his word that speaks to us. I felt the impact of his forgiveness and compassion in my sin. And aren't these experiences all but a foretaste of the greater glory that is promised to us in eternity. Surely you've had those experiences too. God says, this is my son, listen to him. If I believe that to be true, and I've, like in my head, and I've also felt that in my experiences, the goodness of the gospel in my life, will I listen to Jesus then? Will you listen to Jesus? Does he and the gospel shape your life? Isn't it so much easier to listen to the voices in the culture around us isn't it so much easier to listen to the self-help gurus, the social media influencers, the progressive society that screams, Jesus is no longer relevant? We'd listen to those voices at times. Yet when we look back to the Bible, all, we realize all of that comes and goes, doesn't it? Generation from generation, everyone has an opinion. But what if we listened to Jesus? What if we took to heart his words, repented of our ways, and turned to him in obedience and love? If you're a follower of Jesus... You're a follower of the crucified Savior. Are you going to listen to his word? Are you going to follow and obey him? And what if listening to him, as hard and countercultural as it might be, leads us to a deeper spiritual experience where we come face to face with true lasting glory? The truth is when we listen, not only is it transforming us, it fortifies us as well. As we listen, we discover the Son of Man is going to suffer. Those who follow him, his disciples, his people, we have to expect suffering will come our way too. At the end of chapter 8, verse 34, uh, he says this. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples, Jesus. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Friends, consider with me the human experience of life comes with moments, doesn't it, where we struggle 
where we're fearful, where we feel burdened, where we feel helpless. Isn't it true that in those moments, the love that we receive from around us, the help that we get, the support, the presence of a, of a friend or a loved one, those moments of joy and love and comfort, they shape us, don't they? They, they? they help us to keep on going when life gets tough. You can think of someone, right? When you were struggling, you had a friend you could talk to. But imagine the presence of God accessing his very glory in your worship through Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus unveils to us? Imagine his presence. We live in a sin-stained world, in these sin-stained bodies with our sin-stained hearts. But aren't we empowered just that much more when we know the love of Jesus in our lives? When we know he walks with us? When we know the great sacrifice and forgiveness in his death and the glory and power in his resurrection? Doesn't that strengthen us and empower us just that little bit more? What the disciples experienced fortified them. They gave them courage and empowered them. And the rest of the Bible tells us about the stories of the disciples. For the suffering that was to come that their way for following a crucified Savior. Friends, we need to be prepared. We live in a world where there is suffering. We're going to face suffering. The suffering of just being human. All our experiences, but the struggles of being a Christian too. Where we have to fight sin. Our own individual personal sin. And deal with other people's sin. And we have to uh, live in a world that's very much against, more and more, against Christianity. So we're fighting, we're struggling in here and out there. We shouldn't expect less from following a crucified Savior. We need to fortify ourselves. And we can do that through the Word of God. We can do that through prayer. We can do that through the Christian community. In those everyday graces, we we experience glimpses of the glory of God, don't we? We need that. They're our supplements to perseverance and resilience and courage as we live out the Christian life. We need to listen to him. We need to, we need to come to him to be fortified, to be empowered. Back in 2018, I had the opportunity um, to travel with my friend Adam to Tasmania. We hiked and climbed Cradle Mountain. Uh, it was a seven-hour return hike. Uh, it was worth it, though. We got to the top. I was tired, exhausted. We got to the top. Uh, the snow-capped mountains and the rocks. It was really dangerous. But we loved it, and we got to the top, and the view was breathtaking. We sat up there for about um, about an hour in solitude and prayer. We didn't want to talk to each other. We got up there, and we took it all in, and we were praising God for His creation. Well, it was awesome. It's been about five years now, and I barely remember the feeling. I should remember it to be good. Aren't we all looking for that mountaintop experience that can last, that isn't temporary? As we listen to Jesus, as we live for Jesus, I want to encourage you to commit to to the everyday graces. Read your Bible, prayer, commit to your church, but also find other ways that will help supplement that. If you're into journaling, journal. Go climb a mountain. Listen to Christian music. Spend time with Christian community. Do what helps you to worship and embrace those momentary mountaintop experiences. But let those experiences, those, those moments of glory, remind you that this is just a foretaste, a preview of what's to come. We'll get to experience the glory of God forever because of our Savior, King Jesus, because of what His death and His resurrection accomplish for us. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you. For Jesus, for our King, our Savior, the one who died on the cross, the one who was raised again so that sin and death are no longer. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to to listen to him, to know that he is good, to know that what he wants for us is good.
as hard as it might be in a world that uh, where we have to live a countercultural life, I pray, Lord, that we'll be able to come back to you and see your great glory. We'll be able to enjoy your grace and know your love for us in our heads and in our hearts. May the, may the knowledge and our experiences of who you are shape us, fortify us, strengthen us, empower us to live for you. And so we pray this now in your son's name. Amen.